Welcome back to the special live edition of Truth Jihad Radio right here on Revolution.Radio, the premier listener-sponsored free speech network. Please become a listener sponsor. Go to Revolution Radio, that's Revolution.Radio on the web, and find a way to help keep this great station alive. I'm Kevin Barrett. My website is TruthJihad.com where you can subscribe to my Substack. Okay, let's get going with the second hour tonight. You know, there are still some very sharp, sophisticated, sane voices on the American political left, believe it or not, and we have a couple of them in the second hour of tonight's show. We'll go to Dave Lindorf of This Can't Be Happening in the second half hour, and he'll talk about his piece, If the U.S. or NATO put fighters in the air over Ukraine, we'd have world war, uh, among others. And uh, let's move to the first hour now, or the first half hour, rather. Tufts University history professor Gary Loop is a very, very insightful writer who's been doing great work on the key issue of NATO expansion and the way it's blown up the Ukraine. So, boy, uh, it's uh, if we if we escape World War Three here, we'll all be very, very lucky. And if we do, it'll be partly thanks to folks who face the facts of the situation rather than getting lost in the emotionalism and the myth. And Gary Loop has a very good analysis. I highly recommend his work over at Counterpunch. I think we have him on the line. Let's find out. Hey, welcome, Gary. How are you? I'm well, thank you. <clears throat> hey, good to have you. Well, yes, good to, um, to be here, Kevin. Yeah, so, so Gary, you know, I, I, it's, I find your work really refreshing. You know, I came up in the academy at a time when there was still a, uh, a sophisticated political left, and then, you know, this was in the, like, 1980 or so, uh, yeah. and it seemed to decline into all kinds of postmodern uh, weirdness. And today, uh, what passes for the left, at least in popular culture, looks like all kinds of, you know, gender, uh, gender deviance over here and identity politics over there, and we're all fine with the oligarchs basically taking over everything everywhere. And now that Putin's got a couple of oligarchs under control and the Chinese have kind of got their oligarchs under control, we need to go to war against Russia and China so our oligarchs, the Western bankster elite, can rule the world. I mean, that seems to be basically the paradigm here, and the so-called left is mostly just fine with that as long as they get their gender deviance. Am I being too harsh? Um, a little bit too harsh, but um, I, I agree with, with sort of the principles. I'd, I'd um, look at it chronologically and um, think in terms, first of all, of this, this period of real vigor um, in the 1970s. That's when I was, uh, as a high school student, reading the Black Panther newspaper and being very much influenced by Huey Newton writing, our ideology is dialectical and historical materialism. And somehow a new left emerged <clears throat> despite all the Cold War anti-communism, and a lot of that had to do with the influence of uh, the Chinese alternative model, and but also the uh, counterculture. And Anyway, I, I think that there was a sort of high tide of of uh, real left radicalism in terms of uh, an interest in Marxism and class analysis and understanding the Vietnam War is something more than a moral atrocity, but actually a, an incidence of an imperialist war. And there are ways of analyzing um, the Vietnam War and other contemporary events and putting them into a whole perspective of U.S. imperialist wars. And 
Anyway, I thought that that was a, a period that sort of peaked, and then the Vietnam War was over because basically the, the Vietnamese defeated the U.S., and then there was this period of sort of calm, and nobody really wanted to talk about the Vietnam War. It was not celebrated in film or anything. And, and then there was the Iran crisis, and suddenly, once again, like rallying around the flag. And um, Anyway, I think that that was the turning point. And meanwhile, so many of the people kind of brought up uh, under the influence of the new left, start to um, kind of do what, what Marx criticized in the 1840s among the young Hegelians, that they were just thrashing around in this universe of words mm -hmm. and interpretations instead of changing the world. And uh, I think a lot of people retreated into academia where they used some left jargon to mount these intellectual cases for the deconstruction of sexist language and things that, you know, are interesting and important, often extremely important in some variant in themselves. But uh, I, I kind of think that they succeeded in changing the subject yeah. and saying, well, we're in a postmodern period now. That means the contradiction between socialism and communism, that tired old thing, ha, 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 that's been overcome with technology. So all that Marxist stuff is an old hat and, you know, now it's, we're into technology and, um, you know, the yuppie culture of advance through innovation and anyway, so there, there is all, I agree with what you're saying in terms of being diverted into identity politics, or at least the wrong sort of identity politics to the exclusion of, of the most central issues. On the other hand, since um, circa 2008, um, and having something to do with the Wall Street crisis and with um, um, Occupy Wall Street and other movements, um, in the, um, the first uh, Sanders campaign, and, and we can look at that with some skepticism and should, but it did galvanize a whole lot of young people yes. who, whatever socialism meant to them or to Sanders, they did not have a problem with supporting a socialist. And then the pollsters were finding out that, gosh, what went wrong? Our young people have a more positive attitude towards socialism than capitalism. And again, even if there's confusion all around about what these words actually mean, I think there's been a sea change in which that old Cold War anti-communist propaganda, crude as it was, and subsuming under communism, socialism, Marxism, and, you know, in the John Bircher's eyes, you know, civil rights and, you know, liberalism. Um, but... I see a real progressive trend in the mentality of young people. So what I'm looking at now is to what extent are they going to be channeled into campus demonstrations that basically go from, you know, uh, a kind of 
morally unimpeachable statement of solidarity with the people of Ukraine and then take a step further because that's what tends to happen. People start to raise demands. And I can see a demand being no fly zone. No fly zone. Why not? Why the hell not? You know, and that would um, indicate that there is such stupidity. Yeah. Um, even among those who are more or less progressive, that 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 the prospect of war uh, is you know multiplied as a result. Um, one good thing about the present crisis is that people are now talking more than before about NATO. Maybe asking, "What is it?" Because most Americans don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, Haven't Trump really was already questioning about. NATO. Who is? Trump was. Trump Trump was. Uh, he- yeah, yes, yes, yes. And, 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 of course, that is what makes it easy to treat the questioning as something associated with the most ghastly extremes. Um, although, given that he does sort of represent maybe one third of the population, I'm relieved that that third is probably not going to aggressively promote World War III. Absolutely. You know, I, I think that the, I think the America First populist movement has gotten a bad rap, and that those guys were not the evil Nazis that our official court historiographers have uh, claimed they are. I mean, I, I think these are basically people with common sense who recognize that the U.S. instigated World War II, which was basically between the U.S. Empire and the British Empire, and we won. We stole Britain's gold and stole Britain's empire, and everything else was just collateral damage. And uh, it was evil, and, and the America First people were absolutely right. We had no business starting and winning that war. Well, I, I wouldn't agree that the U.S. started it with with Britain. I think it's you know you have to make a sort of nuanced argument, but um, you know, and then a key issue is why Germany was so uh, uh, victimized after the First World War, such as to give rise to fascism almost predictably. Aren't you getting lost in just the words when the actual reality is that the, the biggest powers that got the war going were, were the British and Americans? Yeah, and it, and it, was, um, it was essentially an imperialist war, inter-imperialist war like the First World War. However, with um, uh, a new twist, certainly it's different from the First World War in that the Soviet Union did the heavy fighting against the Nazis and basically defeated the Nazis, leaving the U.S. to think, oh, my gosh, this hasn't gone exactly like we'd hoped, Mm -hmm. but we will um, dominate that part of Europe, which we didn't conquer from the Nazis, and we will allow, since we have no alternative, the Soviets to maintain their presence in the places that they did defeat the Nazis. Withdrawing, though they did, um, having been assured of these countries' neutrality from Austria and Finland after the war. So that has to be understood, that, that, that whole post-war history has to be understood in order to mm-hmm. grasp what's going on now. So, so NATO, uh, what happened when the Cold War ended and NATO lost its raison d'etre? why did it suddenly become this offensive alliance waging wars of aggression all over the world, including against Russia? 
Well, that's an excellent question, and it's good to point out that it was a question at the time. And it was, you know, there was no secret about it. There were dissenting voices saying, in, including some founders of NATO, those who survived that long, um, Kennan thought it was a horrible idea to maintain mm-hmm. NATO following the collapse of the Soviet Union, precisely because what is there is on that? So it had to be created. And, uh, in, uh, of course, in uh, cooperation with the existing NATO powers, who were not all that enthusiastic or clear about why it needed to um, continue, we have to remember just the other day, Macron, or, or last year anyway, Macron was saying that NATO was brain dead. So, you know, suddenly we're given the impression that there's NATO unity. And, well, if so, it's happened very recently. And mm-hmm. what um, the whole idea of perpetuating NATO has been, so far as I can see, is to perpetuate U.S. leadership, if you can call it that, over most of Europe. Or U.S. I call NATO a, a, a euphemism for U.S. occupation of Europe. Well, yes, yeah, it, it 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 certainly would not be much of a distortion to put it that way. But what we're seeing now is the extent to which um, an alliance that I was seeing as as fraying has unexpectedly pulled together. And uh, your your next guest is going yes, to be David uh, Lindorf, who um, who wrote a, a very uh, effective column on Germany. Mm-hmm. And um, well, I think we we share the disappointment that rather than sticking up for some basic like its right to um, to purchase um, petroleum products from Russia, since it's convenient and since that's the, the Adam Smithian norm in human relations or trade relations between countries. And the Germans have been saying to the U.S., don't interfere in what is a bilateral trade relationship, whereas Biden was saying, no, you're betraying the alliance by helping Russia, and you're also diverting profits from Ukraine. Um, you know, like that's supposed to be the, the clincher. But the fact is now Germany is unprecedentedly obeying, um, or at least in recent years, obeying Washington, despite all that's happened and all the discrediting of, of Washington. So the question then is, how long can the German people and um, put up with the hardship? Right. Well, what, what do you think of the analysis of, of people like uh, Michael Hudson and Pepe Escobar, who argue that that this is really uh, uh, just as I as I was arguing earlier that World War II was really between the uh, rising American Empire and the declining British Empire. Likewise, what's really going on now is a struggle between this you know U.S. dominated central banking cartel that, uh, as Michael Hudson points out, has engineered a situation where they can print unlimited green paper and force the world to exchange real goods and services for it. And that's what they've used to build their empire and ring the world with 800-plus military bases. And that scam is just about up thanks to the rise of China. 
and they're trying to perpetuate it now and prevent the uh, arrival of this new Eurasian access, the Belt and Road Initiative. And breaking yeah. Germany off from Russia is the key, and that's what this war is really all about. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I so. I think the first thing is to to set up the questions appropriately as we are, including the one you just asked. So um, are the Europeans going to be able to tolerate the kind of austerity the U.S. is asking them to do for the sake of the alliance, or is it going to start to collapse after some months? That's one issue. And another is to what extent the relationship between Russia and China is going to hold up. I would be shocked if something major occurs in the trading relationship. And then there's the question of how will that Eurasian, emerging Eurasian trading block that can't access, you know, normal, well, such services as the U.S. is willing to provide, that leads back to an alternative uh, and to a really more, more a multilateral world without nuclear holocaust. Mm-hmm. And so it, your article uh, on the people voting for the lesser evil, that was Biden versus Trump, were actually voting for NATO expansion, and they were voting against Trump, who, according to John Bolton, would have uh, withdrawn from NATO in his second term. Um, how are we going to educate people uh, so that they understand what they're really voting for, because these left-leaning or people thinking that they're left-leaning certainly didn't mean to be voting for World War III. Well, I, I've always had a, a pretty radical tack on this uh, by just discouraging voting and saying, you know, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It's all a farce. If it changed anything, um, it would be illegal. Um, but yeah. So um, to say, how do we decide who to vote for? And I think we should probably assume that there's no one to vote for who's going to have a very, you know, uh, both informed view of things and um, any possibility for a, a support base because you have to be sold in order to to get into office. Yeah, I, I just vote to send a message. Uh, if there's a good person, I'll vote for them uh, for a third party like Cynthia McKinney in 2008. And I, uh, I wrote in RFK Jr. actually in the last presidential election as a message about the coup, the coup d'etat that killed his father and uncle, which he is quite open about talking about. Um, so, you know, it's, I, I think voting, like anything else, is really a form of communication. Yeah, yeah, it, it has multiple um, possible functions. Um, but, but certainly voting for somebody because you think you're going to be among the 150 or whatever, 100 million people that voted for somebody who's a little bit better than the other guy that the bad other guys are voting. How can people be stupid enough to do this? I, I don't understand it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm an educator, and I, I guess I have too much faith in education and the educatability of people, um, you know. Uh, I, I just see this solid front at present of um, it, it's like a set of talking points that um, people going out to campaign door to door 
swallow, you know, or, or a salesman selling books gets a certain spiel down, and they've got their spiel down. They go on mm-hmm. and they talk about all the horrors of this um, uh, indiscriminate bombing, and then they find all these different ways of showing the the horrors and human interest stories, and nothing has any further light on the reasons that all this is going on. It's mm-hmm. just... Um, you know, ignoring major stories about volcanoes and, mm. you know, in order to devote to more details about the misery that uh, the evil Russians are inflicting. Well, also ignoring the you know, vastly greater evils that our own tax dollars are inflicting. You know, frankly, it pisses me off to see these uh, extremely detailed and heart-wrenching stories about the suffering in Ukraine, some of them just blatant, obvious hoaxes, like the maternity hospital bombing. Please, we talked about that in the first hour. Uh, oh. When, uh, well, according to Gijin Palia's research, uh, we had a holocaust of Muslims after 9-11 triggered deliberately by the 9-11 false flag that killed perhaps close to 25 million and prevented another 5 million from being born, making that a more than 30 million Muslim Holocaust brought to you by your tax dollars, which helped blow up the World Trade Center, murdering 3,000 people to enable the murder of another 30 million. And uh, let's not even talk about Yemen, where almost 400,000 civilians have been murdered by American bombs dropped by Saudis, Emiratis. Uh, and we're supposed to cry and cry and cry about Ukraine, where by all accounts the Russians are actually sacrificing a lot of their troops to try to be really careful to avoid civilian casualties, whereas the American way of war yeah. is to do the exact opposite. It really pisses me off. I'm almost ready to enroll in the Russian army. <laughs> well, you know, when you talk, well, I wouldn't say that, um, but, um, Yeah. Well, that, I, I'm just giving you the, uh, the effect that their propaganda has on me. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Profoundly depressing thing to see such a, an absolute wall of unanimity. And um, you can knock your head against the wall trying to challenge every point. I'm doing my best. But... Um, uh, Illogic is beginning to prevail, but um, we'll just see what the the realities are and how they affect understanding, consciousness, frustration. Once Americans start to really hurt from uh, price of gas alone, uh, they might start wondering why is this confrontation necessary? Why does the United States not simply make a pact not to expand NATO further? Isn't it obvious that NATO expansion is a problem? Let's stop it. I mean, if this goes on long enough so that people have enough time to think, mm-hmm. um, maybe it'll be uh, as important as something like the overthrow of Putin in Russia through a, a widespread uprising. Which is not inconceivable, I think. Hmm. Well, if that happened, uh, it would, one would think it would probably be CIA instigated, and I, I'm not sure that the Russians are <laughs> that. Uh, oh, I, I'm sure that they're already t- uh, looking around for, for uh, options, but I, I'm talking about something that's really elemental, hmm. that's legitimate, that's coming from the, uh, the Russian masses. 
Because I, I think that while Putin is uh, quite popular, or at least that's what even the unofficial U.S. taken polls would show, that uh, he might be taking a real beating right now. Because what I understand is that on the, the Russian media itself, there's been criticism, questioning. In fact, I saw some myself where it was taken down. And uh, certainly in the Chinese media, there's a lot of sympathetic Hi, treatment of Ukraine. This idea that China is closely allied on this issue with Russia is just not true. Well, it's uh, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I, I've kind of looked at the stuff on both sides about China, and it it does appear to me that, of course, they're publicly kind of hedging their bets. But for instance, with this recent scandal around the uh, discovery, quote-unquote, uh, which we all knew about uh, if we were paying attention, all these U.S. biowar labs in Ukraine. Uh, and the Chinese are supporting the, the Russians on that, and that's very important. I don't know if you're familiar with... Oh, yeah, yeah, with that, that, but that's, that's a separate thing. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the, the pointed um, uh, Chinese statement about uh, right to self-determination and uh, mm -hmm. the China policy not um, interfering in other countries' affairs, but but also the sympathetic treatment on the the Chinese media. Also, um, I don't think you can underestimate the impact, negative impact, on those who continue to perceive themselves as Marxists. When he damns Lenin for creating this problem for promoting Ukrainian self-determination. Um, the Cubans certainly did not like that. Uh, nobody likes that. Oh, I, I, um, no, I making, disagree. I think a lot, him a lot of people fascist. like that. Rus Russians, certainly, uh, many Russians like that. Well, if they do, uh, I, I think they're a minority. Um, really? uh, and I think that there are... Uh, still an awful lot of people in Russia who are familiar with Lenin and sympathetic with Lenin and who found that particular um, statement coming out of the blue did in the context of justifying the invasion of Ukraine uh, really worrisome. Uh, I can see that really blowing out a certain portion of what hitherto has been his base. Well, there is a, there's certainly a Communist Party in Russia, but it's quite small. My impression yeah. is is that uh, even during the communist period, uh, the communist ideology was kind of uh, a mile wide and an inch deep, and that Russians are basically nationalists. Um, well, I, I think that's an overgeneralization. I mean, cer certainly, even if they were a, a small minority, there are people in uh, Russia and throughout the former Soviet Union who are sympathetically informed about Lenin and who found that condemnation of Lenin is quite shocking. So w what I'm saying is that I don't know how Putin's popularity in Russia is affected by this, but I'd be surprised if it's not being very negatively affected. Well, we'll see how, how it all goes. Uh, I think on both sides, there's always the possibility as wars drag on and it, whichever side isn't winning the war often has uh, people start to uh, get tired of the war. We saw that with Iraq and Afghanistan here in the U.S. And so both sides possibly, you know, we'll see, I think, a waning of this uh, pro-Ukraine hysteria in the U.S. as uh, as the Ukrainian defense fails, as it will. 
but then uh, who knows where it will all go with Russia. Uh, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to touch base in the future, Gary, because yep. I actually have a different take on this, but that's probably because, um, you know, I, I defected from the left a while back and have a whole different uh, analysis of history than you do. But um, it's certainly worthwhile talking to someone as erudite and thoughtful uh, as you, and I, I appreciate your terrific work on your your, your lesser evil article and your other uh, recent articles on this. Uh, it's a total breath of fresh air compared to most of the rest of what's out there. Thank you. Okay, and I do I do hope to have you back for a more in depth conversation in the future. Uh, you're obviously somebody worth talking to, so take care. Okay, be well. Thank you. Okay, you too. Bye. Bye. That's Gary Loop of Tufts University. Uh, since, uh, since Andre Volchek, um, passed on, <laughs> I, I've been looking for, uh, you know, for a really good, uh, Marxist, uh, to come bring on the show regularly. And maybe Gary should be auditioning for that role. I miss Andre, by the way. He was, I think I've had more Andre Volchek shows than shows of any other single guest. And, uh, since he's, uh, he's been gone, there's been a big gaping hole <laughs> where, the, where the cool Marxist on Troops You Had Radio, uh, used to be. Okay, well, let's get into the second hour. Uh, Gary's fellow counterpunch writer, Dave Lindorf, of This Can't Be Happening, has just put out a great pair of articles. Uh, if the U.S. or NATO put fighters in the air over Ukraine, we'd have world war, which is a much needed and hopefully much heated warning. And then the new one is Germany deserves a big share of the blame for the Ukraine disaster, which hits the nail on the head as well. So, uh, let's, let's talk about him. Hey, welcome, Dave. How are you? Hey, another Marxist on the show. Another? Are you are you actually a Marxist? I, mean, I thought you were sort of uh, just left. No, no, I'm a Marxist. I've been You're a Marxist, Marxist since I was 18. Cool. Okay. Well, well, you know, maybe I, mean, uh, I can keep having some good Marxists on the show. Like I said, Andre Bolchek was so much fun to have on. Uh, he he was our uh, roving global Marxist correspondent on the show for years and years. Uh, but you're you're doing great work too. At Counterpunch, I think Andre finally got kicked off of Counterpunch at some point. Uh, have, have you checked, by the way, the the marks? There's a there's an interest. I only stumbled on it recently because of, of somebody who contacted me uh, for, about the Ted Hall story. Uh, there's a um, a uh, what do you, what do we used to call it when you, you you had the old internet and people would write in and it would be a long stream of writing. It was uh, there was a term for it. Oh yeah, like there were FTPs you know, and um, yeah, moves no, and it's just 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 an email string of people writing that are on the list. You know, mm-hmm. I yeah, can't yeah, remember lists. what it was. It was, yeah. a, it was. Oh, anyway, they, there's something called Mark's Mail, which um, people do, and you get different groups on it, and they and they ha- talk about ideas, and it's it's really really good, and it's very civil. You know, even though they're arguing with each other. Very civil. It's, it's interesting to follow. There's a lot of views about this conflict mm-hmm. uh, from a Marxian perspective, but they disagree on the perspective. <laughs> so right, right. Is a, it being Marxist doesn't mean uh, lockstep at all. Um, and uh, they all have Marxian basis. For it. But there's a lot of discussion about the Lenin thing right now on it. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I mean, you, you should check it out. Just look it up, Mark Mail, and see whether you can find it. But it's quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, boy. I, you know, uh, you know my, the way I would see this relating to to Putin, you know, if you're going to try to relate sort of Marxism to to Putin, 
the, as far as I'm concerned, the anarchists won the argument with the Marxists back in the 19th century because the anarchists correctly said that if you or anybody else seizes state power, the state isn't going to just benevolently wither away uh, because that's not human nature. The state will become horrifically oppressive like it is now and like it always will be. Uh, and they were right. And and the Marx, Marxist, Marxist regimes uh, in the 20th century were uh, quite nasty, uh, like so many other regimes. Uh, so well, except for, except utopian, for Allende. I, except yeah, Allende well, yeah exactly. Like, and he got knocked out. He was a Marxist. Yeah, no, Allende, I, I would have voted for Allende. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> But, but the point being that the, the Marx had a lot of the critique was largely right. Uh, the critique of capital was largely right. I don't agree with the history or the metaphysics, but the critique of capital, you can't really argue with that. And maybe we haven't even reached the point where that contradiction becomes <laughs> the biggest, you know, the b- biggest historical level ever. So that, that part was right. But with, uh, you know, with somebody like Putin who recognizes that the utopian dictatorship of the proletariat was a miserable failure uh, and that if we're going to live in the real world uh, with human nature as it is and just try to make things uh, as best as we can and muddle through without these insane utopian materialistic dreams, maybe what we need to do is uh, respect uh, certain aspects of traditional culture that have actually kept uh, psychopathic capital or, you know, unleashing the powerful to grab even more wealth and power, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You keep those traditional strictures, uh, which are part of the traditional culture of the nation or the tribe in place. And that actually works uh, and allows for a much more pleasant society than you'll get under a Marxian dictatorship. And I, I think Putin's probably right about that. Well, I wouldn't say that's his analysis, and it's not. I would I would argue with you that uh, the oligarchs are, are uh, enormously powerful in Russia and in Ukraine. This is almost a, a war of oligarchs. Don't you think, though, that the reason that Putin is hated uh, by by the powers that be uh, is that unlike Yeltsin, he isn't completely owned by oligarchs. In other words, he, he created a iron-fisted state apparatus that could kick the oligarchs' butts if necessary, keep them in line so that they minimally follow the national interest. And so unlike the United States, which is an utterly corrupt society where there there are no platonic guardians in this country anymore, there are a few people that tried, like Gordon Duff, my first-hour CIA guest, but they lost. And corrupt oligarchs with their billions of dollars who are just utter psychopaths, corrupt, selfish, greedy people who don't have any ideals at all, those people totally bought all of the politics in the Western world. The oligarchs rule the Western world. Putin keeps them a little bit under control and has a platonic uh, state, platonic guardians that are putting the Russian national interest on the map. And likewise in China and likewise in Iran. That's why we are being brainwashed to hate Russia, China and Iran, because the psychopathic oligarch uh, ultra capitalists that rule the West want to rule the world. And these independent countries with sovereignty are standing in their way. Well, that last part is right. I agree with you totally. Uh, that that that's the, the issue is that the U.S. is not getting its way with China, which is a largely capitalist, uh, fascist state, and uh, and then you know Russia also, which I don't know how to describe it, but you know the the thing about the 
we'll have to have this discussion again uh but because i don't want to take up the time with it but uh for you but the uh the the russian situation is uh complicated by the fact that russia was a uh, basically a peasant society when they had their revolution they had a tiny working class in a couple of cities and so it, it never really got a chance to have what you know marx was talking about a, a, an advanced industrial society having a proletarian revolution and we just haven't seen that really mm-hmm. anywhere came close in germany uh but it got crushed mm-hmm. yeah Back in, and- you know in the mid 19th century so uh so we really don't haven't had a test because, because the capitalist powers have worked assiduously to crush any birth of a communist society in a in a modern industrial state like like France like Italy you know where you had the uh the CIA uh, come in and undermine it after the war when we could have seen a, a communist Italy which was a pretty industrialized country or a uh uh or a uh, communist france that was a very close call too mm-hmm. so uh and even england was moving left after the war and in a serious way and had a strong marxist uh party so uh and none of those came to fruition largely because of us undermining of them, of them. Mm-hmm. Well, that's true. But also the, the reason we haven't had an Islamic utopia yet anywhere is because uh, the shaitan, al-Babillah, has undermined every effort to, to create one. But one, others, <laughs> might, others might argue that there's an aspect of human nature involved here as well. Yeah, well, you know, human nature is important, too. And, and you, you can't. I, that's why, you know, I'm a, I, I'm, when I say I'm a Marxist, I, I'm saying that uh, as a non-dogmatic person. That that uh, you know, my father was a Jungian analyst. Um, oh, cool! As a second career after being an engineer, <laughs> and you know that's pretty far far out. And uh, you know that's wild. Uh, so yeah, no, he's a brilliant guy, brilliant electrical engineer, computer scientist who changed careers at fifty eight. Huh. Um, went to the Jung Institute. Um, so yeah. Um, no, I'm open to ideas. I know that, I know that, the, you know, the psyche is real. I know that, uh, you know, human nature is important and, and all of those things. Uh, a lot of those things were not, uh, incorporated in, uh, orthodox Marxism. Right. Yeah. Well, I, Jung was, uh, always, uh, the one, uh, psych, psychoanalyst that struck me as, as really contributing something. Um, but actually that does raise, maybe we can bring Jung a little bit into this discussion in that, uh, there, there's something kind of nightmarish, uh, about the last few years as we lurch from, you know, COVID shutting down the world for two years to the brink of nuclear war where, you know, we may be closer to the doomsday clock or closer to midnight than ever before. Um, and, and there's, there's something in the, in the human psyche uh, that I think is, is, is when we're, we're living with these weapons that can put an end to civilization, most of our lives, and maybe even, you know, a lot of the ecosystem that's, or at least the Northern hemisphere. Uh, and this is just, the destructive powers are so enormous that it really drives anybody who's aware of it crazy in a certain sense. Like I, I was driven a little well, bit crazy when I figured this to, out as a teenager. To my article. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> about the about the uh 
no fly zone nonsense. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. So people calling for no fly zone, thinking that that's benevolent and they're they're peaceniks. I mean, what's up with that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's because it's because there's two things that are going on. One is that you've got some uh, some really really stupid and uh, and um, what will I say uh, uh, craven people, uh, particularly in the Republican Party uh, down south uh, and in a few other states, and also some Democrats like Connor Lamb, uh, you know, in uh, in Western Pennsylvania, congressmen uh, who are calling for this this, this idiotic no fly zone business and. It, when you think about it, it's because they don't realize what a no-fly zone really is. Then, then we, we've had them basically in third-world countries, where uh, they're usually used to start the war. You know, you come in, we say we're we're protecting the people, so we're going to have a no-fly zone, like we did in in uh, Iraq, uh, Libya, and and, uh, and uh, Libya. Yep, and. Uh, and Syria, parts, we divided it up with the Ruskies, uh, and had no fly zones and, de- and, de- you know, de, what do they call it? Decon, deconfliction, uh, efforts between the two countries as we were going around bombing all the people of Syria and, and, um, in numerous other places we've had no fly zones. And if, um, we now we're in a situation where we're talking about a no-fly zone against a country that has fighter planes that, uh, in many ways, are better than the ones that we would have I- enforcing the, the no-fly zone. The Russians have some very, uh, uh, very excellent fighter planes um, that would that could take on any of our fighters, including the F-22 and the and the Looney. F-35. <laughs> so uh, what is a no-fly zone in that situation? The first thing about a no-fly zone is people think it just means you fly in and you show the insignia of the United States and fly around in the air and nobody bothers you, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, but, but even in a relatively third-world country like Syria or, uh, or Libya, uh, the first thing you do if you're going to establish a no-fly zone, is you take out all of the anti-aircraft sites on the ground and any and any air force that the third world country might have. But that's easy to do in a third world country. You know, they maybe have 20 planes on the ground. You knock them all out. You, you put bombs in the few airports they have so they're pocked with craters and can't be used. And then... You take out all the, uh, at the same time, any uh, anti-aircraft sites. And that's what the U.S. did in Syria. That's what they did in uh, in um, uh, Libya, and uh, it's what they would do in Iraq. But who's manning the uh, the dangerous anti-aircraft? They, they've already done it in in Ukraine for the Ukraine forces, but they have pretty old equipment. What? Um, I think they have 50 planes left, I was told, but they're not very good planes. And I don't think the Russians worry about them that much. But um, what what happens when the U.S. says they want to have a – let's hypothetically say they want to have a no-fly zone over Iraq or even – over the Ukraine or even only over uh, 
the area that they're fighting, I de- which I doubt they would do. Um, they'd have to do it over all of Ukraine because Ukraine has planes and stuff over in the western part. So um, what they have to do is take out the Russian anti-aircraft equipment, which is portable and has been brought into the country uh, along with all the other stuff they've pulled into the country. And there's something else they have to do that's really scary. A lot of the Russian anti-aircraft missiles are in Russia across the border. So how do we take those out? Well, we have to fire missiles at them and blow them up. So we'll do that. Not a great uh, idea. You know, that's getting that's a great idea, isn't it? If we don't <laughs> do it, they'll take out our plane. So they have the uh, the um, what is it called? SS three, SS four, and uh, and I think they have something called an SS five. Their missiles are really good. They they the three even is good at taking down F-16s and F-15s. And the four uh, is why they didn't want Turkey to get it because yeah, too good Turkey for wanted to buy them. Yeah. Well, they, they know that it'll take down the, uh, uh, the, the uh, fifth generation fighters like the F-22 and the F-35. Uh, and what they don't want is for the Russians to get a hold of the um, – inner workings of those planes so that they can refine the missiles ability to take them down. But, but they can, they can probably do it now. And so, you know, that means we have to go into Russia and blow stuff up, which is, uh, an act of war against Russia that, yeah, that's World War III right there. What happens then, all the war games that have been done by the U S and Russia have, uh, it resulted in a nuclear war within, you know, hours or days of the start of a war between the two countries. Because as soon as one of them starts to lose, um, they're going to turn to nukes. And they do something called an escalation ladder. That's how they. That's how the Pentagon discusses it. They don't think in the Pentagon that the thinking goes. Well, we don't go straight to a nuclear war if we use a nuke. We use little nukes on the on the battlefield, and. Uh, you know, just as a sign to the other side that has nukes, that we're willing to use them, so watch out, right? So the, sig- the first way the war starts is a signal sent by, you know, dropping a, uh, you know, maybe a five megaton or one, me- I mean, a five kiloton or one kiloton bomb. They get really small. The, the dialable ones can go down now to 0.3 kiloton. Kilo- yeah, I've heard so. It's like, like three, of carbon. 300 tons. Yeah. yeah, it's a large truck bomb, right? No, 300 tons is a lot of dynamite, but it's not a lot of bomb in terms of a nuclear, nuclear bomb. Uh, that's a, it's a tenth of the Nagasaki bomb. So, um, no, it's, a, it's a hundredth of the Nagasaki bomb. It's a tiny bomb. And so they can use these small bombs and blow up a bunch of, uh, troops and, and concentration of tanks or something. And that's a, that's supposed to send a signal to the enemy, Russia or China, if it were China, and say, hey, you know, uh, we're not afraid to use this. So, um, you know, here's a sample. Uh, don't do what you're doing. Back off. Right. Well, what's Russia going to do? Are they going to back off of that? No. They'll show that they've got one, too, and they'll blow up some of ours. Yeah, and they, then they'll be proportionate. You're on the first rung of the escalation ladder. So then what does the U.S. do? Then, the, the, you know, the strategists will say, well, you know, we, we got to show them that we're tough. 
So we're willing to uh, take out their command and control center. Okay, boom. You take off the command and control center of this war, which is somewhere uh, in, you know, the other side of the border in Russia. Well, what are they going to do? <laughs> I mean, there's, there, there probably isn't a command and control center in uh, Ukraine for the U.S. It's probably on an aircraft carrier in the Black Sea. So, boom, there goes that. And, you know, it steps up. If they blow up a U.S. Air, aircraft carrier with a nuke, what, what do we do? We probably try to take out Sebastopol or something. Um, I, it just moves very quickly, though. All of these things, these are split-second decisions. So within a day, two days at maximum, we're in a full-scale nuclear war. And, the, and both countries have said, uh, and the U.S. repeatedly has made a point, we will not be, uh, we don't, we are not signing a no first use, uh, agreement, uh, but, or making a no first use rule. Uh, we will not be the second country to fire nuclear weapons in a, uh, in a all out war. Mm-hmm. I.e., we will be the first to do it. And so, um, that's why we have the weapons we have like the Minuteman and the Trident, which have pinpoint accuracy. Why do you need pinpoint accuracy for a retaliatory strike? Yeah, all the all the silos are empty of your enemy, so you don't need to hit a silo. Uh, all the um, leadership, if you were the um, second nation retaliating, all the command and control people in the attacking country, like Russia, are already under some mountain somewhere uh, before they launched, and all their troops are dispersed. They're not in, a, in tidy little bundles on bases because they know that there's a retaliation coming. So they launch their first strike. You don't need anything accurate. You need like big sucker bombs that take out, you know, a million people at a shot and city at a shot and just destroy the whole country. Um, and that we could have had our missiles much more cheaply if we didn't uh, make sure that they could hit within 100 feet of the target. Right. That's yeah, what that, we have. First, we have, first strike we have strategy. precision. Yeah. Pardon? Yeah, I'm sorry. But yeah, that first strike strategy is something that most Americans don't understand, don't realize, and would probably be horrified if they knew that we were doing that. Oh, yeah, it's true. I mean, everyone is told that we are we are we need these to retaliate so that no one will dare attack us. That's why they say we need the Trident submarines. But those Trident submarines are not for retaliating. Therefore, uh, launching near the Soviet Union or near Russia, rather, uh, an all out attack that they would only have minutes to respond to because those subs are lurking around off the coastline of, of Russia. Right. On both coasts. And, and, and why would you need pinpoint missiles for, for a retaliatory strike? You wouldn't. Mm-hmm. So the real purpose of our nuclear arsenal isn't so much just deterrence, but actually to threaten other countries with this first strike capability. Right. The Russians know that we're ready for a first strike, and they may be too. I don't know, but uh, but they're not. The, the problems the Russian has, the Russia has compared to us, is that they don't have a very very many ways to get close to the U.S. and launch. They may have a submarine or two that can launch from uh undersea uh without surfacing and get the hell out before uh its missiles uh, are identified 
Um, but, you know, to take out the whole country, most of their missiles are in Russia and take like 20 minutes or so to get here, which gives us time to launch everything we've got. So they're not in a good position to do a first strike. They, they, right. They've developed these hypersonic missiles with the idea that they can launch them and they can't get shot down. So uh, that at least uh, would be a first strike if they if they launched those. Uh, but it would it would not stop a retaliation because it takes so long to get to the U.S. at 6000 miles an hour. So it's not it's a it's a good deterrent because uh, they're going to get here. Right? Mm-hmm. We're not going to take them out if they launch first. Well, but you still have that thing. Yeah, Dave, Dave, have, you, have um, you seen have you seen the angry American strategists saying what what's with these Russians? They're building these huge bombs that could they only could be used for uh, massive retaliation, which would be so evil. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and, and the first strike right. that they're retaliating to—that's not evil. Our first strike posture is is nice. That's that's the implication. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, if we could pull it off, but we've never been able to guarantee that they wouldn't get a lot through. Um, that was Reagan's reason for the Star Wars was he was he dreamed that they, we could uh, build a system of anti-missile systems and uh, satellite systems and stuff and and virtually guarantee that no Russian retaliation would get through. It didn't work. It was a, well, that was a fraud. But now we're doing that was a now we're doing fraud. Trump's space force to try to do the same thing with higher tech that we've got now. I don't know. I don't think we can do it. But yeah, I, I, if I we ever did, we. But the, the, the yeah, back when I mean, Reagan was doing it, uh, you know, I, I, I became friends with Dr. Bob Bowman, who was the head of the Star Wars program under uh, Carter and Reagan, or I'm sorry, under Ford and Carter. And he quit and became a whistleblower because he was so disgusted by the first strike policy. And the Star Wars was actually part of the first strike policy. All that stuff. Absolutely. There, so was there, the, that, that was part the MX was part of it. Right, and it wasn't it wasn't was even a, about stopping the Russian missiles. But the stuff they were putting up in space was actually stuff to fire in a first strike because the, those platforms, Bob said, were actually very vulnerable. So they were putting artificial asteroids up there. They had a, a weapon that could set fire to a city from space, uh, and it mm-hmm. was all it was all first strike stuff. Yeah, fortunately, none of it worked. But the <laughs> the uh, but the you know that's the intent, and we're we're more capable of doing that kind of stuff now with lasers and all kinds of stuff. So so the the you know that's always been the goal of U.S. nuclear policy since the uh, since the first atom bomb was uh, exploded was to be able to do a first strike. There were a lot of plans for doing it early, uh, like around 1950, 1951, and the Pentagon told uh, the uh, Pentagon told. Uh, Truman, who asked the question, you know, they said, you, you, we need to have 300 to 400 atomic bombs because they weren't, you know, that big. They were like Nagasaki. And uh, there's sort of a limit to how big you can make an atom bomb. Yeah. And, no, David, um, I'm sorry, I think we hit the end of the show, but actually you and I did an interview a while back about uh, the that that early dangerous nuclear era, and I will go ahead and link that at the radio blog. Oh, yeah, find. that's a good idea. You have that uh, yeah, I, I wasn't sure who I, who I told that to. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that, that's, that's actually one of my favorite interviews. Well, Dave, I'm sorry to throw it here. Thank you so much for your amazing work, and uh, I hope somebody needs it.